Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNDW. FNDW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome everyone to the podcast, Everyday Nonviolence. I'm your host, Diane Sandberg. My guest today is Princess Haley. Princess is a co-founder and the Senior Engagement Officer at the North Minneapolis-based organization Appetite for Change. It brings people together to learn, cook, eat, and grow food. I'll be talking with Princess about the extraordinary work being done at Appetite for Change and how her personal experience with violence has impacted her life and her work. Welcome, Princess. Hi, Diane. Thank you for having me. So you, along with two other women... Latasha Powell and Michelle Horowitz founded Appetite for Change in 2012, not long after you lost your teenage son to violence. Tell us a little bit about what led you to get involved with this work. I was really set up in a way from my childhood with both of my grandmothers engaged in growing food and cooking food in the urban area in Chicago. And it set me up to understand and see early on the important role that food played in bringing people together and connecting people and families and communities. And so when I came to Minnesota, I was only 19 and I didn't know anyone here. And I I came because I wanted to be able to grow and cook and eat good food and have the water and good air. These were things that without a teacher talking to me about environmental justice, I knew Chicago didn't have really good air or water or soil. And so me and my boys, we grew food. We learned to grow with the Hmong farmers on Olson Memorial Highway. And after my 16-year-old son, as you mentioned, Anthony, was hit by a bullet intended for another child two weeks after his 16th birthday on July 4th, 2010, I was, I didn't go back to my garden and I was tired of looking at people on the ground. So I started to stare into the sky a lot and sun gaze. And I fell in love with the sun because my son was missing physically. And the sun said to me one day, why did you let your garden die? And this was in 2011. And when I went back to the garden, of course, the strawberries he and I had planted were re-sprouting and cucumbers, which are not perennials, were growing. They were vining up the swimming pool steps because I didn't close down the backyard from that previous summer after he died. And 
I remember looking back at the garden and and saying, "This is this is going to feel good. This is going to do some healing. This is going to do some some give me a good space to return back to my work." And so when Michelle and Latasha reached out and started to talk about the foodscape, I felt like it had something to do with the young men who, or young people who make decisions in urban areas to take life or to fight or to carry a gun to protect themselves, that maybe their frontal lobes aren't developed right because of the pineal gland calcification because of processed food or highly fluoridated or chemical bound water or poor soil or not being able to get outside enough because you don't feel safe in the parks because of over-policing. So I felt like this was the way that the universe wanted me to go when Michelle and Natasha reached out after the loss of Anthony. And how did it feel those first couple of days or those first couple of weeks back working the soil? It felt like I needed to be barefoot. It felt like I was a root I felt like my hair was branches and leaves. I felt like I was being fed through my, I I literally ran and did some research, like what is the skin? And then I found out the skin is like the largest organ. And so it was possible for me to be absorbing microorganisms or vital minerals through my, the pores in my feet. And it, it was, it's fulfilling. It's actually what I'm planning to do now. I still have strawberries that Anthony planted and it's been almost 11 years and I've got, I've, I've, I've saved like one little plant and I'm going to keep growing those strawberries as long as I can to remind me of his energy as it was here. But it was definitely fulfilling to be in the soil. And the mission of Appetite for Change is to use food as a tool to build health, wealth, and social change in Minneapolis. And was this kind of the plan that you all had in the beginning when you first started the organization? We really felt like being that we were working with a community that had encountered such disparities and was disproportionately affected by everything. And, you know, Black people have five or six number one killers, like As a Black woman, my number one killer is HIV. My number one killer is my husband. My number one killer is breast cancer. My number one killer, like, which one is really the number one? You can't have that many number ones. And so we felt like it would really be unfair for us to come in as other nonprofits and tell the community what to eat. But we wanted to offer people or to say that we're empowering people to make better decisions because we believe that people come with inherent dignity and self-worth and power, but they often need a space and a place where they can operate that power, where they can share voice and, and narrative and question and challenge each other. And so we came up with an idea to not just, to find out from the community what they wanted to do about the food, but we just didn't want to serve a meal, have daycare, give out some gift cards and do a survey. We wanted to really let people put their guards down. And I believe that my teaching philosophy is that if people can experience something first and then go back and explain what they experienced and then define it, then attach it to like what Webster says that is, 
then it's more they're more capable to model it but they have to experience it first and and describe it in their words they have to feel it and then they have to say it in their words then they can attach it to a definition and then they can do it and teach somebody else and so when we cooked and ate and talked we were asking people about who do you grocery shop with what's one vegetable you won't eat what's your favorite vegetable to cook like how do you cook dinner at night what do you what's your favorite holiday like what does food mean to you before we said how do you feel about the 38 fast food restaurants on west broadway I always say we give you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. You teach a man a fish, you feed him for a lifetime. But we were getting people to think about their relationship with the fish, so to speak, with the food. And so that gave them the ability to share with us solutions to issues that they were facing firsthand. And they were wide range. It was like 10 ideas of things we could do. And when we turned around, we had 10 programs doing all those things the community said, and we didn't have to do much recruiting because we had buy-in because we were doing what the community requested. So that was not our plan. I don't think we thought it would go that way to answer your question, Diane. And have you had a pretty easy time incorporating your ideas into the community? Or like you mentioned, has there been a lot of pushback tied around kind of race and preconceived notions of the community's relationship with food? I want to say, like, it's almost like, you know, the equity picture or the equality picture where you you have three different people standing on one box, but then everybody's a different height. So you've got to meet everybody where they are. I remember one lady, she was helping us with facilitating our community cooks events because we cooked and ate and talked with 400 community members in eight sessions. And she was like, she was like dissing me because my Jordans was dusty. Like I like my little expensive gym shoes. I am from Chicago. The Bulls did win like a whole bunch of times. I don't know how many, but a lot. And she's like, well, why do you mess up your gym shoes? You spend so much money for them. And oh, you got dirt all under your nails. I got to get my nails done. Like I couldn't be growing in the garden. Like you're so fly. You could have people bringing you vegetables. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I love creating. It's, it's, I'm made in the image of the creator. We all are, and we all look different. So is it that we all have the ability to create either music or food or you can make clothing or build a building. Like that's my my being that wants to do that. And she's like, and your hair is natural at the time I had locks. And she's like, I could just never do any of this. And last year she ran a CSA and she makes medicine and she forages. And so, and, and her hair is natural and her nails are not done. And her gym shoes are just as dusty as mine. <laughs> So when you make that individual change and you stand on it, I believe the being having been rooted in experience and taught and brought up the way they are to say, I don't like anything. I don't know. Like we've heard so many times, I don't like leeks. I'm like, you don't know leeks. They're just big old green onions. Look at that. I don't like kale. You don't know kale. They're like the cousin to the mustard green. I don't like broccoli greens. What are broccoli greens? Like, you don't know broccoli greens. I sold you broccoli greens 
last week at the farmer's market and you thought they were collars. And now you're requesting those very tender collars that we don't have any more of, sorry, because they were not collars, they were broccoli greens. So you have to meet everybody where they are and you have to let people wrestle with it. That's a part of, and it has to hurt and you have to challenge them and they have to challenge you back because that's when growth happens and that's when change happens. So we, we get pushed back and we get flagged. Uh, one other story I wanna share from a young person's perspective. We had a youth and I don't share names, but I always ask the community's permission to share their stories um, without their names. But this one young man, I recently moved and I called him and I said, can you help me move a few things? He said, Miss Princess, I got you. And he faked me out for like two or three days. And then I called him and I'm like, okay, I'll buy breakfast. Like, even if you want McDonald's or White Castles, I'll buy breakfast. And he's like, all right, all right. I'm like, and I'm sending you an Uber right now. Because this was the last day I was moving. And I promise you, me and my husband were just going to topple over each other and be dead in the backyard. It was just too much. And when he got here, he had this big container of water. And I said, so what do you want for breakfast? And he's like, um, I, I don't eat like that no more. He like, I mean, do do like Starbucks have like some healthy breakfast or he like, no, 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 no. Like you got some fruit. And I was like, yes, I just went to Cub last night because we were moving. I think I spent like $79 on prepackaged fruit. I felt so silly. But that's what I needed. I needed mango and raspberries and I didn't, could not pack a knife. And so I just got what they had and I ended up sharing that with him. And he was like, I lost so much weight. And I'm like, you did. But this is like after being with us for six years. So you have to give people time. A lot of our young people, they are not buying food in the household. So maybe they're not in control of those food choices. And, and for some of our you know, our, our, our spouses and our couples, they're ho we're holding dear to what our parents taught us. So you got to let people wrestle with it and fight with you. And then eventually the change comes. Talk to me a little bit about the relationship between food and safety or food and security. When you don't, when you don't know where you're going to live and what you're going to eat, it just puts you in a mind frame of, of basic survival, like moment to moment. Well, you have to steal a pack of hot dogs to feed your kids. I remember seeing a lady like going to jail for stealing a pack of hot dogs to feed her kids. I'm like, now you're not even gonna go home to your kids and they're still not eating. So it, it, it puts you in a situation where, or, or will you have to, you know, what things will you have to compromise as far as your morals and values to, to get money to get food? Everybody should have access to fresh and local food and the knowledge to be able to create something that's healthy for their family, even if the trucks don't come in and even if the stores are closed. That's what we've been faced with with COVID. Like, look at everybody's response. We went and cleared the shelves out of shelf-stable food ravioli, ramen noodles, stovetop stuffing, hamburger helper. I was writing a list for my husband, like, if you could get two purple cabbages, like, and he was like, babe, there's so much produce here. So when you hit that trauma, we often go back to our comfort food. And, and that creates a, so 
I believe that the safety comes with internal and external environment. How has the work of the organization changed over the years? We have grown from having contracted staff to a group of youth who were just volunteering and hanging around to now we're 55 full-time employees. We started out with community cooks and appetite for growing because that's what the community said that when we cooked and ate and talked with them, they said, we like this, you should do this as a program. And so it became like a community organizing tool where we would cook and eat and talk with the young people about the police officers in their schools. And they came up with solutions like, we have parents who are on MFIP who have to volunteer or do job search. Like, why can't they work in our school? Or why can't they volunteer in our school instead of these police officers? Because even if I'm playing with my friend and I snatch his backpack, they think I'm stealing it and then they wanna take me to jail. But if it was my auntie or my mom, she knows that's how we culturally play. Then we had Appetite for Growing where we were organizing with 16 community growers in a co-op and aggregating produce from them and growing on a few lots that people were letting us use. And now I think we're, we're looking to purchase, well, with the new Urban Ag Bill, we were looking to, the city was saying that they were gonna purchase land for us to be able to grow on. We did get some policy changed around the farm stand bill. How many days, if you grow locally, how many days can you sell them? Um, making sure people have access to those city-owned lots to grow on. Northside Fresh, which was a coalition of 36 community partners who came together to do the social justice work. I remember Michael Cheney calling me on like the day before Christmas Eve, like, yeah, we're going to be at the Capitol tomorrow. And I'm like, it's Christmas Eve. He's like, yep, North Minneapolis is going green. <laughs> Come to the Capitol and see what I mean. And I'm like, I'm there with you, Baba Cheney. And because we had to give respect to the 36 other community partners who were already doing food justice work before we hit the scene. And then Kendra Kitchen was a shared kitchen incubation space since COVID. We've had to close that down. Um, Breaking Bread Cafe and catering was an idea that came from some young people. One night I had 25 young people in a conference room with 12 chairs. They would do rock, paper, scissors to see who would get the the, the spot on the floor because heat rises and you get 25 black kids in a room beating on a table and rapping at five o'clock at night. The coolest spot is under the table. And we were all hungry. And I was like, well, run across the street and get 50 wings. Like I'll buy them. And then maybe I could take some to my family afterwards. And they were like, no, we are tired of eating shit like that. And they left and they came back with data and I'm like, I thought y'all was thugs. Like y'all know y'all just surveyed the community. And like it's 38 fast food restaurants. It's 16 vacant lots. It's two buildings without names on them. We don't even know what they do in there. And, and this building next door to Appetite for Change is empty. What is that about to be? And they did a Kickstarter campaign and raised $120,000 to open Breaking Bread Cafe. And we created the culture of asking the community what they wanted and the youth followed lead and asked the community what did they want to name it what did they want to see there so yeah you get breaking bread cafe real food for real people not 
just Breaking Bread Cafe Northside for people of color, Northside for Black people, but real food for real people opens that movement up to everybody. And I, those young people were so, that's when we came up with the term, the youth are the truth. They were so intentional and inclusive. And these are the young people whose underwear match their tennis shoes. How do I know? Because you can, because they're sagging, right? So they're the, the ones we call the thugs that we ride past on the corners. We fed them kale salad and alkaline water and their solutions were different. We changed their internal environment positively and they changed their external environment positively. They said, if we have a funeral or a graduation, we have to leave our community to go to a sit down restaurant to celebrate or to mourn. And we got Breaking Bread Cafe. And then the next year's youth was like, ah, y'all opened a cafe, that's cute, but we're gonna do a viral video. <laughs> and they did. So on Halloween, I had 16 kids rapping about vegetables instead of trick-or-treating. Like, I'm like, I can die and go to heaven now. Like, uh, nobody's going to ever say they did that in the world again. And they dropped Grow Food. And then we started to manage the West Broadway Farmer's Market because we were the primary vendors there with produce, being that we were aggregating from farmers who didn't have time to grow it, harvest it, and come sell it at the market. These are our elders or people who are trying to work jobs. And we know farming is labor intensive, actually healthy though, because then you exercise before you eat your food. I think it is. And then we just grew, we grew. And then when COVID hit, we had to pivot. And with that pivot, we, instead of cooking and eating and talking at Community Cooks, we started a mailbox program. So we're sending meals to your house for you to cook and eat and talk in your home. Do you think with the changes you had to make during COVID, do you think that that grew the organization in that change? I mean, did that did that feel like a, another step forward? I believe we have some core values, and one of our core values is innovation. A few of the others are accountability, integrity, community-mindedness, resiliency, so for us to have the community in mind around COVID, they weren't telling us nothing. We just had to watch their behavior. They weren't responding to the Facebook lives where we were saying, what are y'all, how y'all feeling? What's going on? Like, let us know what y'all need. It was crickets because it was trauma. But when we observed the behaviors, we were able to see that people went back to comfort food. And so, and then mothers weren't cooking. Um, I dropped my daughter off at a friend's house who does some social justice work. She was like, girl, I got refrigerated full food. Princess Anne could cook. Like, let her go in there and cook some. I just can't get out the bed. And that's how I felt. And so we started the Community Cooks Meal Box. So I think it did grow us into the nooks and crannies and those, those dark corners of the depth of the pain of the people in our community. And we met them there with a box of food and two recipes so that they could cook and eat and talk with their family about the external trauma from the universal double pandemics. And then we did community meals for organizations that were giving out meals to people after the uprising, our grocery store closed. And so people needed food. 
there was like 24 organizations that were giving away food, but they were running out. So we started to prepare some from scratch meals for them to give away as well. We did about 117,000 meal boxes. We did about 370,000 meals with our meal distribution. And then with our youth, we evolved and started to do some healing groups with them, with Connie at Restoration Inc. and the Intentionality Program with Andrew Yu, because this is how the youth were sounding. How are you doing? You wanna check in today? You got any feelings about what's going on in the world? Um, yeah, I'm okay. And then my daughter's like, I don't wanna talk about it because I don't care. And I'm like, "Why? how can you not care? She's like, it's just too much. I, I got, like, I got school, like, what's that? I didn't take yearbook pictures. I'm not graduate. I'm not walking across the stage. I got straight A's, but they gave me credit or no credit. Like my my future, my stability, the idea of what the world was going to offer me has been snatched from under me. And now you want me to comment about George Floyd? I can't. I'm 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 too young to even take any more. And my daughter was like, "Well, maybe I'm desensitized. Does that mean I've been through too much?" And I'm like, our babies have been through too much. And their, their future is so unknown. My daughter said she thinks that life is going to look like the parable of the sower in the, her future. That book by Octavia Butler. Um, we listened to it on audiobook together. And she's like, I think this is how the world is going to be when I'm growing up. So their future is looking grim. And it allowed us to grow into those spaces and meet people where they don't necessarily aren't motivated to come out and grow with us. We had to meet them there. How do you even begin to confront that kind of trauma in the community where it's just things on top of things on top of things? Is, I guess, how how does your mission even begin to take on that kind of load in the community? Well, being that we say it's about health, wealth, and social change, we just started to acknowledge that people's health is their wealth. Because when we initially said health, wealth, and social change, we were talking about food, growing, cooking food, wealth. We were talking about entrepreneurial opportunities through food and social change. We were talking about using food to organize, to talk about housing, transportation, economics, politics, or, you know, not politics, but like advocacy work within policies, getting laws changed. And then it switched to us looking at really your health is your wealth. Like that's your first capital. You, you know, you are a human resource for yourself, first and foremost. So just acknowledging that and then focusing at Appetite for Change on our staff's health and wealth. And then being public about our steps that we take in health and well-being and mindfulness. We partner with some great um, women, Dr. Patty Holliva, Marnie and Stephanie from the Art of Living Well, to just kind of talk about being mindful and giving yourself space to heal. But personally, I, I did an interview yesterday and they were asking me about the recent situation. And when she mentioned it, she asked me permission to ask me and I blocked it out. And when I heard it that morning when my husband told me, I think I blocked it out. And when she asked me on the interview, it hit me. And so 
giving yourself permission to decline if you want to, giving yourself permission to engage. I've asked during like the trial for people around me to not talk to me about it because I'm a mother who's lost a child to gun violence. And so when I heard about um, George Ford losing his life, I always, or when I hear about anybody losing their life, I think of their mother. And when they, he's, when somebody told me like, well, he, he called for his mother. I'm like, wow. And then I saw a little bit of this young man's mother on the news. And so I often just think about women as mother, even women who have not birthed children, but who have parented and who have loved, you know, somebody through something and, and help birth somebody through something and that midwife um, role of like whispering in the ear and getting somebody like through the college application process. Like it's, it's a lot. And I believe we have to give ourselves permission to be wherever we are with our health is our wealth in the forefront. Like if I'm not ready, I'm not ready. If I'm ready, I'm ready. If I cry, I cry. If I vomit, I vomit. If I curse, I curse. If I'm silent, I'm silent. And so really just giving yourself permission to comfortably be where you are. Because in healing, all you can do is lead your own journey towards healing and model it and hope that people see it. And it gives them permission to, to move in and out of the that cyclical process because it's not linear. It's not like denial, acceptance. It doesn't go like that. And some days it just pops up and you look real good. And you're like, all right, I'm good today. And it's like, boom, you're not. And you're like, oh my God, I'm not okay. So just giving yourself permission and acknowledging that your health is your wealth. What do you think needs to happen in Minneapolis for the city to heal? Do you think it's possible? I do believe it's possible. And I've heard the saying, and I, I didn't understand it until I thought about healing but I was told in some studies with some African elders that the African lives in the past the present and the future at the same time and I'm like how but I believe that Minneapolis must live in the past the present and the future at the same time because everybody's going to be at a different place so we're going to have to come together and we're going to have to acknowledge the past wrongs We've, you know, there was white flight from North Minneapolis. And then we got all the fast food restaurants here for the Black people. You know, we, we have to acknowledge some of those situations that happen and let people process through their feelings of that. And then the present things that are going on, we have to just have the same type of accountability for everybody and expectations for everybody and rules for everybody and follow them. Like I was told the other day by someone, I think I offended someone because I said white. And they were like, well, that's just discriminatory language. No, I said black and I'm black. So for all you viewers out there, maybe they'll have a picture of me, but I am a black woman. And I said, something about a black person 
And they said, well, that's discriminating. And I said, it is. And they said, you should say BIPOC. And I said, I should. And I didn't get it. But then I got it because that person had this past trauma around just the term Black. And I don't know what their experiences were, but I had to meet them where they were. So to acknowledge what's going on in the present, but then to be told as a Black woman that I couldn't say Black because I was discriminating against somebody that was Black. So I can be discriminated upon, but I can't discriminate. Like, it just doesn't seem fair. So we need a common set of rules for everybody. And then to live into the future, I do believe that when I trained as a teacher, you have to go in and do field experience when you're trained um, in law enforcement, your uh, community, what is it called? Your community something officer before you're actually a police officer when you're in training. When you do anything in the medical field, you have to go in and do your field experience. And I believe if you're going to be working in a community that does is not the community that you represent, that you should have to cook and eat and talk with the members of that community and share culture and music and dance and dress and, and history to be able to see those people as people again. Thank you very much for your time, Princess. We're really looking forward to see what you're growing next. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.